as we get ready to read uh, the scripture, Mary and I are going to read it together. Um, we're continuing. This is the third of three weeks where we're in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is a big scripture. That's why both of us are reading it, but it's got a lot in it. And so I want to take a moment to ground us um, and remind us of what we do when we enter the world of scripture and to remind us that entering the world of scripture is always, always a cross-cultural conversation. We enter into the ancient world of our sisters, our brothers, our siblings in the faith, and we hear from them the stories of how they experienced God in their world and their culture. We take them seriously. And then we think about what living word we might hear for our world. Where do we see God? Where do we experience God? Where might we live like that here in our world? So as you hear these teachings of Jesus, I expect there'll be at least one thing that makes you go, huh? Remember, it's a cross-cultural conversation, and together we will find a living word for today. Our second scripture is Matthew 5, 17 to 18, 21 to 37. As we pick back up in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister or sibling, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother, sister, sibling has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your sibling and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with them, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving, living God, in these um, ancient words of Scripture, help us to find a living word for today. Amen. As I worked with this Scripture this week, I started to get the feeling that I was back in a law school classroom. Jesus is teaching, he's talking about the law, he presents the law as written. You have heard it said. And then he says more about what it might mean in the current context. What he says is hard to understand, a bit overwhelming and baffling, and it all ends up being so much more than those words of law written on a page. Let's talk about the law and then some. The Sermon on the Mount starts to sound like a law school lecture. It starts to read like a judicial opinion. So as you might expect, I am all about this. But before we dive in, let's remember where we are in the text. This is the third of three weeks that we are considering the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus isn't in a law school classroom. He's just been baptized, God's own beloved, He's just begun his ministry of healing. He has just announced the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he goes up on a mountain with his disciples, and he begins to teach. And as he begins to teach, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He announces, he describes, he proclaims a brave new world breaking forth even now, God's world, God's reign in the midst of the crumbling old order. It's good news. It's a world not of power over and abuse, but of mutual power and mutual care. A world where those who have been held down low are lifted up. A world where help is on the way. Blessed are the merciful and the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when you live these things out. And we discover that this brave new world is coming to life not only in Christ, but in us. 
our lives have the potentiality, the capacity to actualize this new world, to bring it to life. That is the reality of us. That's the reality of our very humanity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so Jesus says, live it out. Let salt be salty. Let your light shine. Live out the good news. That's a lot to take in. And I think it almost inevitably leads to the question, but how? Live all this out? How? How? That's the question. That's the question to which Jesus turns in this morning's scripture. Now just a couple of things to get us grounded. Remember what I said before we read the scripture. We are entering the ancient text and searching for a word for today. This is a cross-cultural conversation. Then and now, their world and ours. Our ancestors in the faith, we enter into their ancient world and seek to understand what they were saying back then about God's love and grace and faithfulness. And then we think about what that might suggest about God's grace alive and at work in our world in and with us right now. What word might we find for living life today? And note that in this particular scripture, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you've heard it said, he stands in his moment and he reaches back into the past, into the tradition, back into another time, and then he brings the word to life for their day. We're bringing the world word to life in ours. In this morning's scripture, Jesus does this by what looks like an antithesis. Here's one thing, but, but here's another. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus puts two things in tension side by side. Now at first, by antithesis, we might expect him to be stating opposites. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you something entirely different. But it doesn't take long to figure out that's not what he's doing with that. But he says it up front, I have come not to tear down the law, but to fulfill it. You've heard it said, but there's more. As one writer puts it, Jesus extends, intensifies, and elaborates on the commandments. The whole of Scripture reflects what God has been doing in the world, and God's work is not yet finished. God's intention are at work in Christ and at work in us. Jesus has come to fulfill, to embody God's intention for good. God's intention for the well-being of all humanity and all creation. And one more first thing. Notice that what Jesus is talking about is ethics. Ethics. Jesus is talking about how to live. Here is this brave new world, and here is how you can live it out. He's describing what I've called before ways of living that lead to more life. Now, I've shared before a framework for thinking about ethics that I learned from Carol Robb at the seminary. It's a way of thinking about three types of ethics. There is rule-based ethics. There's a rule, you follow it, the thou shouts, the thou shalt nots, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not run a red light, thou shalt care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Then there is value-based ethics. What are the things you value the most? Love, courage, 
honesty, equality for all people. Live out those values. Do the loving thing. Do the honest thing. And then there is goal-based ethics. You live toward a goal. We want to live in a world where we start to heal the damage we've done to creation, so we start living sustainably now. Individuals and governments start to live toward the goal. Rule-based ethics, values-based ethics, and goal-based ethics. I mention those because I want to use that as a framework for unpacking what Jesus is saying in this big and difficult scripture. Jesus points to the rule, you've heard it said. Then he goes to the heart of the matter, to the values underlying the rule, but I say to you, you have heard it said, well, yes, that and then some. And the gist of it all is live out that rule out of the broader space of the values that undergird it so that we can move toward the goal of this brave new world. A world characterized by mutual power and mutual care, by justice, by peace. So now, now let's dive right in. The first teaching. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. There's a rule. It's a big one, one of the commandments. But I say to you, yes, do that and then some. I say to you, if you are angry, or more precisely um, in the Greek, if you continue to be angry, if you can't let go, if you continue to be angry with your brother or sister or sibling, stop. You are responsible for that. Stop. Whatever you're doing, stop and go and reconcile. Go and heal that relationship. Jesus starts with what is probably the most significant break in relationship we can imagine. Murder. Ending the life of one who is made in the image of God. Absolutely do not do that. And, and, go and tend to every break in relationship. Go do the work of mending every broken relationship. You know the rule and what is at the heart of that is the dignity and well-being of all humanity and the lives that we are to live together. Stand in that place, in that value, and do the work. Do the work to build this brave new world of mutual power, mutual caring, of love and respect. In my mindfulness work, I've noticed that I do this thing I call spinning. When I'm in conflict with someone, my mind starts spinning out all of these conversations all up in my head. I make my case. I make sure that I'm justified. I get so worked up, I, I lose sleep. I am a mess. I can think of an old example. When I started out practicing law, I had a mean boss. Over the course of my careers, I've been blessed with mostly good supervisors, but this one, oh man, I'd go home and I would give them a piece of my mind in my mind. You know, conversations in my head that always ended with, and you won't have Scott Clark to kick around anymore. I bet nobody else does that. Jesus says, stop. Stand in the solid ground of what matters most, the dignity and well-being of all humanity. Stop 
go have a conversation with the person with whom you are contending. Go do the work even when it's hard. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say don't even nurse a grudge. What matters is mutual loving relationship and the well-being of all people. Go build this brave new world. Get the idea? Next one. Then Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Yes, don't do that. And I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already transgressed. You know the rule, but I say to you, go even deeper. What's really the heart of the matter here, what is at stake, is the objectification of women. As one writer explains, Jesus says what you are doing with that look of lust is ignoring and transforming the personhood of that woman as if she were an object. You're treating her as someone less than one who is made in the image of God. Don't do it. Now Jesus is speaking specifically in the context of a patriarchal world saying don't objectify women. Yes, that applies in our world today as well. And I think we can pull it out even more broadly. Don't objectify anyone of any gender. What really matters, the value underlying this is the dignity of all beings. That's what God has always cared about in the rule and then some. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You know the rule, but I say to you, don't in any way treat anyone as less than fully human. Live into that world of mutual power and mutual care. Every person valued and loved. And then, Jesus takes up divorce and remarriage. And I want to spend some time here. Because I think these verses of Scripture over the course of history have been misused to harm far too many people. Here's where we remember our task. We are entering into an ancient world. In the world of Scripture, when we look at marriage, we see a union that can reflect love and commitment and... And as we consider marriage across the whole of Scripture, we also see an ancient institution in which women were considered property owned by their husband. In the Torah, the law, there was no prohibition on divorce. Men could do pretty much what they wanted with their wife. They could divorce and discard her like property. Discard her into a world where she would have no power and likely no means of living. So they had, they had constructed some rules, some rules about when and how that might happen. In that context, Jesus says, you've heard it said, this is when a husband can give his wife a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, but I say to you, women are not to be discarded, ever. Jesus critiques the whole system, the value, 
what God has always cared most about is the dignity and well-being of all people and all creation. No one is to be discarded. Now for far too long, this scripture has been misused in the church to prohibit remarriage after divorce. In my work for marriage equality, I learned that it wasn't all that long ago, the 1950s, within the lifetime of a good number of folks in this room, that divorced people, divorced straight people, couldn't get married in some Presbyterian churches. There was a rule against it. At one of Janie Spar's trials, where she was being prosecuted for marrying same-gender couples, the prosecutor in that case told the story of what had happened to her, which I share here because she shared it there in that proceeding. Back in the 1950s, she and her husband had wanted to get married in their Presbyterian church. They had both been married before and divorced. Their pastor said no. Said no to them. You can't get married in this church because they'd both been married before and well, there's a rule. Janie's prosecutor brought that logic into Janie's case. And the prosecutor reasoned like this back then there was a rule against divorced people remarrying, and my pastor said no. Right now, there's a rule against same-gender couples marrying, and Janie should have said no. Now, I want to say I have both respect and affection for Janie's prosecutor. It's one of those bizarre things about having church court proceedings. You end up loving each other, hopefully. What happened to Janie's prosecutor all those years ago should never have happened. The church should never have said no. What happened to Janie Spar should never have happened. The values at stake are love and commitment and wholeness. The goals of the new world coming to life in Jesus Christ are relationships of mutual power and mutual care. In our world, we see and know the broad diversity of ways that people form and sustain loving family through marriage and after divorce, through remarriage, in marriage or in singleness, which is the path the Apostle Paul endorsed. We see loving, healthy, blended families, loving, healthy families of choice, loving, healthy families who seek to live together intergenerationally to couples who want to live in love and commitment when they come to the church and say, we want you to celebrate with us, the answer is yes. We will stand with you and support you, a world where no one is discarded and love is honored and embraced. You've heard it said, there is a rule. 
But I say to you, God has always desired the dignity and well-being of all humanity and all creation. Consider that to live lives that nurture and nourish loving relationships of mutual power and care in this brave new world opening up even now. And oh no, I don't have time for let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, so we're going to save that for another sermon, and it's, it's really good stuff. Let your yes be yes, let your, less, let your no be no. Jesus is opening up an ethic for living this brave new world into being. I hope this hasn't sounded too much like a law school lecture. An ethic, after all, is by definition something practical, something you can use Rules, values, goals, Jesus is weaving together all three for the living of our lives and the building of this brave new world. We inherit a tradition of law and wisdom that has been intended to reflect God's constant intention for good. It is a gift we receive. In Jesus Christ, we come to understand that what God has always been doing is urging us towards what matters most, what God has always been about, the dignity and well-being of all humanity and all creation. We hold all this in the reality of our lives, and in Jesus Christ, we see that we are invited into this brave new world, invited to heal and repair and nurture relationships of mutual power and mutual care. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do this and don't do that. But I say to you, there is so much more. You've heard it said, live like this. But I say to you, live like this and then some.